and I was elated when I got paid. It was $500 payout from HackerOne. I was just like, I remember telling my wife, I was like, I've actually done it. Like I can find something like this potentially could be viable for us and for you to stay home with our daughter. But then like that lasted for five minutes and then it was like, oh God, is this the last button that I'm ever gonna find? Like how, how like where am I gonna find the next one? You're listening to Security Sandbox, a podcast about the makers and breakers shaping cybersecurity. I'm your host, Sean Sun, and on this episode, Pete Jaworski joins me to talk about hunting for bugs and writing about them. As you may have heard on the show before, bug bounties are programs that companies set up so you can legally hack their applications and get paid while doing so. But finding flaws in apps can actually be really hard. It's why there's only a small percentage of hackers that can actually make a living doing bug bounties. And yet, why does it seem like our Twitter feeds are always full of things like, yay, I just made $1,000 on this bug bounty program. I mean, yes, we're happy for our friends and we congratulate them on their success, but is seeing this all the time healthy? Does it encourage you or discourage you? And more importantly, how do you get from not finding anything to your first bounty? Where do you start? How do you learn? What do you even look for? One book that's been an amazing jumping off point for security researchers is Web Hacking 101. It's written by Pete Jaworski and it uses real publicly disclosed vulnerabilities to teach you about how you can find your first vulnerability. Pete is on the application security team at Shopify and he's also written real world bug hunting for No Starch Press. And on top of that, he has his own show called Web Hacking Pro Tips where he interviews other bug bounty hunters to learn about their methodology. On this episode, we talk about writing those books, his own journey into bug bounties, and why he wakes up at 5 a.m. to hit the gym. Pete Jaworski, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Um, So you work on the AppSec team at Shopify. Can you talk a little bit about what your day-to-day is like? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So it's almost like the job... I like to think of it split into kind of like thirds. Uh, So a big part of it is the Shopify bug bounty program. So uh, I'm heavily involved in that. Uh, Contrary to popular belief, I don't run it. Um, So it's a a team of us that's involved in it. And with that, just trying to maintain relationships and kind of make sure that reports are responded to and things are triaged quickly uh, and bugs get resolved. The other kind of third is uh, we do security reviews uh, in Shopify. So anything that kind of goes out, we have a security review that that's part of that. So uh, I'm involved in that as well. I'm kind of like the breakers in quotes team uh, on application security. And then the other third of my job, uh, security incident response. So I volunteered for that team. Uh, and so anytime we have a security incident, uh, I'm on a rotation with uh, with some others in the broader uh, trust team. Uh, and I will lead those responses. Um, but the cool thing about application security at Shopify is kind of, uh, you can work on things that are interesting to you. So like, joining security incident, uh, that was me proactively wanting to do that. Uh, so if there's something I want to learn, I can focus on it. Um, so that's what my day-to-day looks like now, but it might be different in six months, let's say. And how long have you been working in Shopify? Oh, it'll be two years this June. Uh, so I started in June 2017. Uh, how did you end up working there? It was... It was <laughs> I've always wanted to work at Shopify, to be honest with you. It's, uh, it's like the tech darling of Canada. And so there's going to be a sidebar, but like uh, we had like IBM layoffs in, in Ottawa where Shopify is located. And they were probably like, I don't know, close to 10 years ago. Uh, and when IBM employees were being laid off, like Shopify went and like put a tent on the sidewalk. and was like hiring people as they came out. And to me, that was like, I don't know, that was like really cool because it just showed like private companies can have like a very good social impact in the world, right? Like that's a very crappy time for somebody losing their job. And then here's Shopify kind of like hiring them right away. Uh, So that kind of started the ball rolling. Um, And then I actually got the ball formally rolling uh, at a hacking event 
Um, so the first H1415 in San Francisco, I was invited to that. And Shopify was a target. So did some hacking, and then we were having dinner uh, that night. And mm-hmm. uh, Shopify had brought a recruiter. Uh, like we have dedicated recruiters to certain teams. So Danae came with uh, the security team, and she and I just happened to sit together at lunch. I don't know if she planned it or at dinner. I don't know if she planned it purposely or not. I just kind of sat down, and we started talking. And uh, I told her that I just started a pen testing job with the Ontario government like the equivalent to a state government in uh, in the U.S. And uh, when we were talking about that, she asked, you know, why didn't you apply to Shopify? And to be absolutely honest, like my plan was do the pen testing for like a couple of years. After that, once I, you know, kind of had my bearings, like apply to Shopify, try to get on the application security team, maybe focus on the program, get some reports under my belt. Uh, So when she asked me that, it really caught me off guard. And I just, I, I was like, I I didn't know that I could apply to you guys. And so uh, she got the ball rolling from there. We just had a quick chat by phone. I I spoke with Clayton, who's now like my team lead, who if you you hack on the Shopify program, you'd be familiar with. And then at that point, I was kind of like, you know, imposter syndrome took over. And I said, I, I, you know, I really appreciate the opportunity, but I don't think that it's the right time for me to do this. And I just started the job with the Ontario government. And so Danae asked me to come out and have like a free lunch at Shopify. And so I sat down with a teammate, uh, Ivan, and uh, he went over kind of like his story. And he came over from, from Guatemala, uh, kind of like just came with nothing and kind of like propped himself up, learned a whole bunch, got into information security and joined Shopify. And his story really resonated. And I, I emailed Danae back and I was like, you know, if there's still an opportunity, I would love to kind of continue to pursue this. Uh, and that, that was how I ended up at Shopify. What is the one thing you love the most about working at Shopify? <sighs> Man, one nailing it down to one thing is hard, and I, I don't say that as like the, the corporate employee. It's so I'll give you two. Uh, the one thing, one of the two things that I've been really like working at Shopify is like Shopify does a really great job of just kind of freeing you up mentally, right? Like you do your best work, in my opinion, when like you're free of distractions. And so uh, that just kind of like, that's an all encompassing at Shopify. Like there's, there's a lot of effort that goes into that to make sure that you have the environment uh, to do your best work. Uh, and so I think that's really cool. And that's kind of like, I've taken that principle and tried to apply it more to my life. Uh, just trying to take out like the small decisions and, uh, and, and whatnot. And then the other thing like that, I, I did not appreciate, I knew it would be there. I didn't appreciate to what level is just the, the talent and the skill of the people that I work with like day to day, not only on like application security and trust, but like just the broader teams at Shopify and the passion that everyone brings to it. Uh, like if you go into like some of the Slack channels that we have where say like there's a production issue that's undergoing, just seeing how quickly people respond to that is insanely humbling. Like there are so many smart people here. And from the security perspective, like when you're around that like-minded people, it just rubs off on you and it just makes your own personal development that much quicker. And so I think that 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 is 100% uh, one of the best things at Shopify. So you were talking about live hacking events. To be clear, H1415 is a HackerOne live hacking event. Security people get invited um, or, or bug bounty hunters get invited to sit in a room. It's like 30, 40 or so people and they attack a target. Was that your first H1415? Or sorry, was that your first HackerOne event or had you been invited to other ones in the past? That was a good question. Uh, that was the first one that I was formally invited to. That was the second official live hacking event, right? The first one was in Vegas and I wasn't actually invited to that one. But uh, Kevin Rowe, you know, another awesome hacker, a good friend of mine, he went the first night to that first event and was talking with Ted and was like, you know, Pizza Town, he would really love to come as well. And so I ended up going the second and the third night to that. And so uh, then I was invited to San Francisco and that was my first live hacking event in San Francisco. 
was that your first foray into bug bounties or had you been hacking on the platform for a while? So I, I started, like I registered for my account on HackerOne in December of 2015. And so, you know, I was hacking kind of like, like furiously as soon as I registered, not necessarily finding bugs and that kind of thing. And then that, if that first event was in the summer of 2016, and it was awesome uh, in that I went to DEF CON because Salesforce paid for me to go. And that was because like I uh, was putting in a lot of time on Salesforce and not to say like I was finding all the reports, but Angelo Prado, who who led up the Salesforce bug money program at the time, I had emailed him to ask him a question of like, would a certain bug class be like, it was, I had a denial of service, right? In, in Salesforce. Uh, and that's not in scope, but this particular one I thought was you know interesting it could be and they have a you know an email address that you could ask questions so i did that uh, and angelo and i were, were talking and he asked if i would be at defcon and i told him no and i thought he was trolling me but he's like what if we brought you out and i was like that would be amazing so that was that was the first time i ever went to defcon and that was how i got out of it was or got to it was through bug money programs and then i met like gilbert for the first time mikhail martin in person uh, and then I ended up at the live hacking event, right? And what I've heard is that you got into hacking um, after you read a book called We Are Anonymous. Um, do you remember what caused you to pick up that book in the first place? Ooh, that's a good question. Uh, like when I think back at it, like I can't remember the exact way that everything played out. I'm pretty sure I documented it in like Web Hacking 101. But it's so, uh, so what ended up happening? So I. This is going to be like a long-winded story. And I'm going to apologize in advance for everyone listening, but we're going to go into it. So uh, I started for with the Ontario government in like 2008. When I did that, you know, I was fresh out of grad school. Like I had done my undergrad, then I did grad school, and then I was starting with the Ontario government, right? And so it was me and my girlfriend. We moved in together. Uh, we both had like jobs that were, you know, we were being paid like $50,000 a year, right? So together we were making decent money for people right out of school. And I thought, you know, this is amazing. We're making a ton of cash. And I remember... Somebody coming back from path leave in the government, uh, I said, you know, welcome back, this and that, we were chatting. And he said something that stuck out to me and I will never forget. He said, you know, you'll never be rich when you work for the government, but you'll always be comfortable. And at the time, like me and my girlfriend, like, you know, we were making, she's my wife now, but, we, you know, we, I thought we were making a lot of money, we were doing well. And then we were at the point where, like, if we wanted to go out to a restaurant or, like, we needed to buy something for the condo, we could just do it. And so I thought that was, like, rich. I thought, I am rich. I don't know what you're talking about. But he opened up my whole eyes to this idea of, like, the ceiling being there, right? And so... Um, the reason why I bring that up is because that set me onto this journey of like wanting to find my own thing and realizing that, you know, eventually I just wouldn't be happy in the government. And so, uh, I kind of went down that journey and I went the programming route and started trying to learn like Drupal. Uh, as I was doing that, I would be like learning and like things would be super complex. And I always loved programming, but I fell out of it in high school. And so when I got back into that, I started like making video tutorials to solidify concepts for myself, but also share with people. I ended up taking this job with a startup in Toronto, like a few years later and go back in a year. So it's kind of risk free to go and work with the startup. When I'm doing that, there's obviously security implications that are like when you're programming anything, right? So I knew nothing about these, but I started learning, like hearing like cross-site scripting and like committing secrets, SQL injections, like all these types of things, right? And so I was always super interested in them, but I couldn't find any like information about them. I, I just wasn't looking in the right spot. And so that was always in the back of my mind. And fast forward a little bit, I now have this choice, like, do I leave government permanently and do this startup? Um, and I didn't think that was the right way to go. So, so I, I went back to the government and I wasn't super happy uh, doing that, but I, I took the opportunity to go back. And so while I was doing that, my wife ended up becoming pregnant with our first uh, daughter. And so 
I was like, I need to find like something, right? Like if my wife and I were both raised by my moms that stayed at home. And so we wanted to have that option if we wanted to do that. Uh, and it was leaving it to, to Andrew to choose. And, but to do that, it's very expensive for like daycare or rather uh, not having a spouse kind of in the workplace. And then you have this trade off for daycare and all that kind of stuff. So anyways, I started looking for like ways to kind of continue. Uh, and I didn't want to just keep building websites. Uh, there was a course on Coursera on security. And so I took that. Um, at the time, I was doing like Android videos of the, uh, on Coursera. And so this one kind of opened my eyes. Like I finally explained SQL injections, explained buffer overflows. And it was like I understood what was happening. And it was around that time that I picked up the book We Are Anonymous by Parmi Olsen, right? And in that book, uh, she documents all the stuff that Anonymous is doing. And it's like 2013 that she's documenting it. So in my mind, it's like, how is this stuff still existing? Like, how are people still popping websites, going after things, SQL injections, all of this. And so with the Coursera course, and then that book, I just started trying to find anything and everything I could. And so I landed on the bug crowd forums. The bug crowd forums uh, was going through. There wasn't a lot of live discussion, but there was reference to like this hacktivity. And so I clicked on that, and that was a HackerOne activity. And then all of a sudden, I found all these like disclosed reports, uh, mostly from Shopify. And I just started reading every single one that I could. And that was kind of uh, what got me there. So out of curiosity, um, you know, you've been hacking on HackerOne, um, and you've been in the security space for a while. Uh, why do you think these, I guess, like bugs still exist? I think it's a combination of things, right? Like, so there's always code being developed. Uh, I don't think people appreciate that. And so... Uh, like with new technologies, you kind of go down like this multi-pronged approach, right? Like new technologies, you know, when you implement them, there's security considerations that are done around that. And when you're trying to like meet deadlines, you know, knowing the security ins and outs of everything isn't necessarily readily apparent. And so OAuth is a good example of that, right? Like OAuth can be super complex and knowing that you have to have like strict URL redirect validation uh, and that like, you know, that the fragment, the anchor fragment will uh, follow on like an open redirect, Right? So open redirect, people know about them. They're not like huge security concerns. But all of a sudden you implement like this new technology of OAuth and you have that redirect and all of a sudden the fragment follows and you can steal people's tokens. Like that becomes a big deal, right? So so there's that. Like new technologies is always going to, like there's going to be security considerations around that that people necessarily haven't always thought through. The other big thing in my mind is like code always ships, right? Like you're always going to be doing something uh, and you're going to be balancing like timelines with with uh, with security and, and all the other pressures that go around with developing code. And so when that happens, it, it, there's always bugs, always. Regardless of what you do, like there's always going to be something that gets into production. And so uh, as a result, you need the, what I like to think of as like the last line of defense uh, with like bug bounties or like this continuous monitoring of, of applications. So going back a little bit, uh, you were talking about that you were creating content around as you learned how to develop Drupal. And then you also wrote the book Web Hacking 101 as well as real world bug hunting. Was that the same case where you were creating content as you were learning it to kind of like digest it better? Or was it much more like how far along were you into security at that point? Yeah, it was. It's almost the exact same like motivation, right? Um, so coming out of like the web development, doing the web video tutorials, I was a perfectionist when I did those. So like I would always want to do them like one shot and I didn't want to edit anything. Uh, in hindsight, it probably wasn't the best approach. Like I could have just edited things, but I just, I don't know. I wanted just a straight thing. I wanted people to see screw ups and that kind of thing. So I was doing that and that really taught me like 
as I screw up and like, there's things I don't, I think I know that I don't know, but as I go to explain them to you, the viewer, it's like, Oh, I don't actually know that. So I have to like pause, go read that. And then like re redo it. And then I get like another third down. So, uh, that opened my eyes to that being my learning style. And so when I was trying to learn for hacking, I would be going through these articles like OAuth is a great one. Like Igor Homokov has like this write up from a few years ago where he's talking about OAuth uh, and the guy's like insanely smart. And so trying to convey what he's talking about in like words, uh, the, the, the ideas and the principles uh, and the implementation was so complex to read. And I was just like, this is, I'm struggling with this. And at the time somebody I think in the comments on his website, somebody had posted to Reddit a plain language explanation of what Eeyore was talking about with OAuth. And when I read that, that was like just an epiphany moment. I was like, oh, like, A, if I'm having this problem, other people are having this problem. And B, plain languaging this and explaining this to others is going to be helpful. And so I decided uh, just to go out and start trying to write these up. And so when I was doing that, I was looking for opportunities. And I don't remember how I, I came across LeanPub because I was trying to learn Rails before. And I was looking for uh, content on multi-tenancy in Rails. So the, this concept of like you have one database, but like multiple customers in it. And like customers should only see their own information. Um, and so there were no resources on multi-tenancy in Rails that I could find except on LeanPub. There was a self-published book by, I think his name is Ryan Big. And so I bought that and I was reading it. And Ryan would like update it. And you would get the updates. Like LeanPub's thing was like return it within 45 days. Updates are forever yours. And so that's how I knew about LeanPub. And I thought, I'm just going to play in language 30 examples and put them in a self-published book. And, you know, maybe a few people buy it and it'll, you know, just kind of give me motivation to keep going with it. But at the same time, I'm going to put a lot of effort into this. I, I don't ever foresee myself finishing it. Um, and so why not do it at LeanPub? Why not just charge 10 bucks, make it accessible for people? Well, at the same time, uh, you know, just giving me a little bit of some money to kind of keep it going and keep it rolling because I'm going to be giving up my time to write it. Okay. So just for a little bit of context for the audience, can you give a quick explanation of what Web Hacking 101 is? Yeah. So uh, in a nutshell, uh, Web Hacking 101 is a self-published book uh, on LeanPub. I walk through, uh, I want to say like 15 different vulnerability types, maybe 10 to 15 different vulnerability types. Each has a, like a brief explanation of what that vulnerability type is. And then we take publicly available write-ups, uh, so HackerOne blog posts, and I plain language them. So deconstruct how a person might have found those, what they were looking for, what the telltale signs were. Uh, and then we have a summary section that's for each one of those. That's kind of like the key takeaways. So if you're looking for this type of bug, this is what you want to look for um, coming out of this write-up that we're doing. And then we summarize that uh, for the chapter in terms of like how you apply that. And then at the advice of Martin Mikos from HackerOne, uh, who really helped me make the book better, I've got a couple other chapters of like getting started in bug bounty. So like, how do you write a vulnerability report? What's it like to interact with the team? Um, what are some tools, some resources that you can use if you want to continue learning? Uh, that kind of thing. So how is the experience writing Web Hacking 101 different from your No Starch book, Real World Bug Hunting? <sighs> they were like night and day, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> so okay. uh, like when I look back at Real World, uh, or when I look back at Web Hacking 101, like I was writing that any chance I could, right? So if I like write a cool write-up, I'd be like, oh, I got to write, like, write this down to solidify this concept. And so I would just like pump it out. 
right? Like, it was just me. First couple of editions had like tons of spelling errors because I'd be doing it in Vim and I didn't realize there was spell check in Vim. And so I didn't proofread anything. I just wanted the content out there. So there was a lot of like rough stuff around the edges. And I've consistently gone back over the chapters and tried to clean that up and, and fix things. Working with No Starch, their team, like, they, like the, the quality of their books is apparent in the process that you go through uh, when you work with them. So they reached out to me and they were like, this book is really interesting. Would you consider, you know, publishing it with us? Um, and they were like, they said, like, let's take like your hardest chapter and let's rewrite that and edit that. So you know what you're getting into. And so we did that. Um, and it took a while. Um, but, you know, the, the edits that came out of that, the, the quality that came out of that, I was like, okay, I definitely want to do this with you guys. And it'd be really cool to have, you know, my name on a book. Uh, I'll be honest, that was, that was a big draw. Right. Um, so yeah, like that entire process, you know, I've been a little bit lackadaisical with it. The book should, probably should be out by now, but it was a lot of hard work and then balancing family, balancing hacking, balancing the book, balancing a full-time job. Um, it fell by the wayside a few times. Um, and that's, that's because of the professionalism that no starch has in the books that they want to get out and published. So, uh, I put a lot of focus on it in the last six months, I'd say, and we're really pushing through, uh, to make sure that we don't miss any more deadlines. Can you share a little bit about what that process is like with no, with no starch or is that a, more NDA type of... No, I, I, don't, I don't think it's... I, I think that there's value in having that transparency because they're always looking for top quality content. And so if people get that out of this, I, I think that's a huge win for everybody. So it's like, I obviously had like a first draft of the book. So uh, I would I would go through all the chapters and I would like read through and clean things up and do like my own self edits, like things that recognizing that I kind of rushed those first that first draft. And so once I had that, it would go to, let's say, like a junior editor, for lack of a better term. And she and I would kind of go through the content. Um, and her not coming from a hacking background, she would clarify a lot of the things I took for granted. And admittedly, there were certain things where I was like, ah, I don't know how to explain this in words. So I'm just going to leave it to somebody to like go research it, which is a terrible approach. And so she would call me out on those like a lot, right? And I, at first, it was super frustrating. I kept having to tell myself, like, trying to make the book better, trying to make the book better. But in the end, it does make the book better, right? Like, it's just one resource you can read so we went you know i think we had like two rounds of edits for that like i would send it to her she would have edits bring them back to me i would fix them go back to her and then uh that was finished and then it went to a technical editor uh so the technical editor would have edits and they would go to like no starch they would review them they'd come to me i'd fix them and then go back we'd all be involved and then once the technical edits were done it would go to like a senior editor i think the senior editor and then uh the copyright editor was in there as well so I could be mixing those two up. It could be the other way, but either way, there's another round of edits there. And then uh, the last part of it is like going through like layout. And again, like you go through layout, they have PDF versions of each chapter, what it looks like. Uh, and then there's still like a, now it's, I'm not even sure what level of editor it is, but it's like this final editor uh, that kind of goes through and makes sure that things are kind of clear, consistent. So like if I'm capitalizing URL, say in like the first six chapters, the last six chapters, I'm doing the same thing. Uh, so they're really looking for consistency throughout the book. Uh, terms, uh, you know, referencing between chapters is all consistent and, and that kind of thing. Um, and then, you know, uh, from there, I'm not there yet, but I believe uh, the uh, final approval is like uh, Bill, who's still heavily involved, who, who, you know, started No Starch. He's kind of like reviewing things throughout there and then just the final sign off and then we're, we're in print. 
So that's interesting um, what you said about the junior editor. It's almost as if the way to make sure your book has the language that explains the topic the best is to have like a, I guess, uneducated reader in a sense. Um, so in that case, let's say you sit down with a 14-year-old kid and that person wants to find a bug. Uh, how do you guide them through it? That is an excellent question. I mean, oh, dude, I almost feel stumped. Just that someone who's good at you know putting things in a normal language and not... Yeah. Or, or someone who's been le- going through that process, yeah. I mean, I, th- I think the approach that I take is... So the, f- the first thing that comes to my mind is like, there's no singular approach, right? Like, it's not like I can, I can pick this 14-year-old out of a room and that 14-year-old in a room, and it would be the exact same explanation. Um, my first question would kind of be like, where are they at technically, right? Because um, the big thing about hacking, and that I didn't, I didn't understand this or appreciate this when I started, is really understanding how the internet works, right? So taking a step back, uh, I learned like a ton of this and how to approach like teaching others, um, not so much from the book because it was just me quietly sitting in a room typing. But uh, a year ago or two years ago, I had asked uh, Hacker One, uh, I think I threw it out just generally uh, on Twitter. I was like, uh, I want to do a free training for hackers. Uh, you know, does any bug bounty platform want to want to help me with this? Uh, and Yobert from HackerOne was immediately, you know, one of the co-founders of HackerOne was immediately put his hand up uh, and replied. He's like, HackerOne's on board. We will support this. We'll sponsor it. And so he and I went to HackFest in Quebec in 2018, and we did a free training for about 30 people. And it was like, come out. Training's free. HackerOne's going to pay the portion to conference, and uh, Shopify is supporting me, like preparing this material. And then he and I are going to teach this. This is all relevant because he and I sat down to develop content. And one of the first things that he he was explaining was like, we have to explain how the internet works. And that was his feedback for the book as well. And it was this idea of like, once you type in a URL, like what actually happens when you hit enter. Um, and it's all, it all kind of seems like, you know, when you've been hacking, like, oh yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Like, why would you need to explain that? But like the whole DNS system, translating like a URL to an IP and then hitting different servers and finding out where that's going. And then like HTTP messages flying around, like all of that is complex. So it's super easy to just kind of get into the weeds with somebody who's like 14 wanting to get into this. But that's kind of like, I first want to take a pulse of where that's at, like what that understanding is, um, and then start diving into like say i would probably go through like the the easiest bug classes so um easiest is a quote-unquote terms because nothing's really easy um but maybe some of like the most basic most prevalent and so like cross-site scripting cross-site request forgery uh, like what a sql injection looks like what an insecure direct object reference looks like and then start trying to plain language those at least at the thousand foot level, right? So like SQL injection occurs when you don't properly sanitize content. Um, and so you can inject your own JavaScript, which allows you to then act as whoever you are injecting it against. And then kind of like take it from there, like step by step, right? Like so a thousand level and then like hundred foot level, 10 foot level and like down in the weeds. Uh, and that was the approach that we took with that training, um, which was awesome. And uh, we had a lot of great feedback coming out of that. And I was disappointed we didn't do it last year, but uh, different life circumstances made me unavailable for that. Of the people who were in that free training, were they able to find a bug at the end of the day? Oh, man. Uh, one of the people that was in that training just won the uh, Hacker One belt. Oh, really? Uh, so Sebastian Morin, yeah. Um, so at the time, we, we did the training and then we finished it off with like three hours of hacking. And so that three hours of hacking, you know, we had we had 
400 500 bucks uh, there to pay people. And so Yobert had coded up like a vulnerable application. And so we did that. And as uh, actually, even taking a step back from that, we were, we were talking about server-side request forgery and teaching it. And um, we were going through like the AWS metadata endpoints. And we taught that. And then we had a break. And Ram Sexy from HackerOne, that's the handle, you can look it up, comes up to us with his laptop and is like, guys, is this like the AWS metadata endpoint? And so on a bug bounty program, he's found it and is showing it to us. And we're like, that's exactly it. Uh, So that was like, that was amazing. Um, And so he's one of the guys who's been invited to HackerOne events. He's found a ton of bugs. And then, yeah, like uh, SM Security, uh, I don't know what Sebastian's handle is, but he just won the belt. And so he was in the training with us and he's torn it up. Like he's probably like, I don't know. He, he's done so much more than I, he should probably be teaching the class now versus when I was teaching it. Um, and then like Ian Korbenek, he found like in the, in the training that we were doing the, the vulnerable web app, he went and found like the second order SQL injection that Gilbert had. That was like the, the most complicated bug that Gilbert had put in there. So like he got a hundred bucks there and was explaining it. And he's since torn it up in bug bounty programs. Like we were just, at the last event, he found some ridiculous bug by brute forcing like parameters on an API endpoint that allowed him to do a whole bunch of stuff. And it's just some of the stuff that were like people that were there and then seeing them at these live events and seeing what they're doing on the platform is just like insane. And I'm not saying it was the training itself, but I think that kind of got the ball rolling. Like, they, like they're all pen testers by day, right? Like, so um, that got them into bug bounties and explained some new vulnerability classes. And I think it got them excited to get the, to go out and do their own thing. So I think the answer is always the same here, where when you ask someone what it's like to feel, to get a bug or to find a bug, it's always, oh, there's a, it's like a rush. It's amazing. It's all that. What is it like seeing someone find a bug? for the first time or find a bug especially someone who's been to your training yeah so like so that one like you know uh, rams uh ram sexy brings up the, the the laptop and he's got the uh i hope it was ram sexy i'm pretty sure it's ram sexy uh so he's got the laptop and he's got the aws metadata but like it, i don't know it just gives you goosebumps it's like oh man like we just talked about that like that's phenomenal right like me and yobert were super excited about that um I, I can't even describe how, how awesome that was. But that's I think that's the case even like when any of your friends finds a bug. So like going to these live hacking events, uh, I get to see a lot of people uh, that I talk to kind of regularly that I otherwise don't get to see. And, you know, when they're finding bugs, like, you know, Kevin, Kevin and I usually hack together um, at the events and, you know, he finds something and leans over and is like, look what I found. Like, it's 100% like just joy, right? Like you're just happy for the person. Uh, It's just a great feeling. I mean, you'd love to see the dollars in your pocket, but at the same time, genuinely happy for other people. And like Ron Chan too, like Ron Chan talks, like he just posted like how much he made the other day. Um, And he and I, you know, chatted and did like uh, web hacking pro tips uh, and, you know, we stayed in contact and then you see what he's making and you know that you're going after targets together uh, or like not together, but he's going after the same targets you're going after. But, it's just, I, I reached out to him and ping him and just said, like, that's amazing. Good for you. Um, that's just a good feeling. It's interesting because, like, you know, like when people tweet out how much money they're making and all that stuff, I guess the question is, is that feeling for someone you don't know, for someone who's not necessarily your friend, you're just seeing them tweet out, hey, I just made this much money off bug bounties. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I would say it's definitely not like I started out that way, right? Like, it's not, and I think you hear that, like, if you ever listen to the Patrick Farabaugh interview, 
that I did uh, for Webpacking Pro Tips. He was the second person I interviewed. He he had said something that stood out in my mind, and I still remember, and I still think about this. But we were talking about like bug bounties and like hacking, uh, and he he described it as like a competition, him and him, like him uh, against others, right? And he's going to find the bugs. And I took that to mean in the interview, it was like, oh, like you're competing against other hackers, like it's you know you versus them because first to report. And he's like, no, 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 I, I'm competing against the the programmer, the developer. And, and so that stood out to me because I had that mentality of like, you know, you're hacking alone and like you got to be first to report it's you versus somebody else. And so I had that mentality for a long time, right? And it was like, if I saw somebody, you know, found a bug on a target that I was going after and they got paid, it was like, it, it was jealousy, right? It was like, oh man, how did they find that bug? Like I wanted to find that bug, right? And it wasn't strong. It wasn't like, you know, jealousy from like the worst perspective or like hatred or anything like that. But I can even think of like Kevin Rowe, like him and I, like we first started talking because I was testing Hacker One and going through like every every part of the functionality I could find. And I remember like walking to work, I would get up at like 5 a.m. and kind of like, go get the bus and go to the gym. Uh, and so I'm walking and I'm, I'm looking at the activity and I see Kevin just found this bug at like something I was just testing. I was like, how did you find this? I was like, oh my God, like it was just frustrating. And so I reached out to him and, and talked to him. So all that to say, like the beginning wasn't like that, right? Um, and it, there's still times where like I'm walking through an application and like somebody finds something, I'm like, oh, I should have found that. Like there's, it, it's not depressing, but it's just kind of like, oh man, maybe I got to try harder. Like you just kind of self-reflect on that. But all that to say, when I when I think about that, I've started trying now to actively distance myself from all of that conversation around like money and like yes i just found a bug and like all the tweets uh that platforms incentivize let's say hackers to send out and so i think i think distancing myself from that and kind of like stopping reading that kind of stuff and not being like in the weeds on that all the time has really helped me to kind of step back and more appreciate when people find good bugs and kind of celebrate with them that they found it as opposed to like focusing on me um and that's come out of like you know uh, there's a book by, we, we talk about this later, but there's a book, Deep Work by Cal Newport that I really like. And one of, one of the things that you, you take out of that is like focusing on the positive. Like if you dwell on the negative, like it's just going to eat you alive. And so, and that kind of like plays into everything. Uh, one of which is like bug bounties. So, you know, I've distanced myself. I've muted all of those uh, types of tweets. I find if like somebody's like just consistently tweeting about the amount of money that they make, I tend to unfollow them uh, and I'll get the content that they have some other way. So yeah, it's. Uh, I'd say like I'm. I'm definitely happy when people do it. I just don't want to be hearing about it all the time because I think that has a negative repercussion for for hackers. Uh, do you ever find yourself in a dry spell where it's a much longer period of time where you're not finding any bugs? There definitely is. So I've gone through. Yeah, like I, I definitely go through dry spells. Some of them are like self uh, inflicted, where you know I I want to stop mm-hmm. finding like the quote unquote low hanging fruit or going after new targets, and I want to go after something a little bit more mature. Mm-hmm. Mature, uh, and you know when that ha- like when you're doing that, you're you're not going to find bugs as easily. But then there are other times where it's like they're not self-inflicted and you're just not finding stuff. Uh, and for a long time, that was hard for me to deal with because I always had this, even after the first bug, I remember talking with my wife, my first bug came like three months after I started hacking or two months, something like that on hacker one. Uh, it was a bug and I was elated when I got paid. It was $500 payout from hacker one. I was just like, I remember telling my wife, I was like, I've actually done it. Like I can find something like this potentially could be viable for us and for you to stay home with our daughter. But then like that lasted for five minutes. And then it was like, 
oh god, is this the last bug that I'm ever going to find? Like how how like where am I going to find the next one? Right? And so I like it's you know part imposter syndrome, part part of the idea of like there's going to be no more bugs to find. There's so many people out talking. There's so many people smarter than me. How am I ever going to do this? So the dry smells come, uh, and then it's just a matter of like having the mental preparation for that and kind of systems to go back and hit reset and not let that kind of like cripple you. I think that's, it's easy to kind of a go through a dry spell. And at the same time, you're looking at Twitter and you're seeing every single tweet come out that says, yeah, it just made X amount. Right. And it's not necessarily all from the same person, but that's all you're seeing from those hashtags when you're following the bug bounty community. Uh, it just, it can spiral and lead to negativity and kind of like withdrawing from the bug bounties, which I think is a negative for everyone involved. And that's why I'm a big proponent of, and I speak out quite frequently of the platforms removing those easy to tweet links about mm. the amount of money that you just made and having it focus purely on the money. Wait, have it focus purely on the money or have it focus purely? The tweets right now are, are written such that like I'm paraphrasing this like, yeah, I just made 500 bucks. Right. And so it's not, yeah, I just made 500 bucks for, you know, an access privacy control violation, uh, you know, in an application that A, B and C, right. Like there's, there's no context to it. All it is is, yeah, I just made 500 bucks. That 500 bucks might've taken you a month, might've taken you six months, might've taken you 10 minutes. Right. But all that you see when you're, when you're reading those is just this idea of like people are making it rain and you're not. And I, having written the book um, and having like you know having new hackers reach out to me, I it's kind of slowed down recently, um, and maybe that's because I'm not as active on Twitter as I used to be. But I used to get a lot of people that would reach out. <laughs> uh, I used to get people that would reach out to me and say, uh, you know. Uh, I'm not finding bugs. Like this kind of sucks. Like how do you do this? Like what's going on? Um, right, and then you just kind of like hear. The, the struggles that they were going through. And I think that kind of played into it. Yeah. So so going back to you finding your first bug, that was two or three months after you had started. In those two months or three months of not finding something, was there ever any like anxiety of like, am I investing my time into something that isn't going to pay out at the end? Or it uh, No, I, I would say it wasn't because... It was a so it was different time. It was different. I was going to say it was a different time. It was a different mentality because I had started the book around the same time. I see. And so the first person to buy the book was Mikhail, right? Mm-hmm. And so like I I, I, I publish it, I, I tweet about it, and then all of a sudden I get somebody buying it for like twenty four ninety five, twenty four ninety nine, which was like the recommended price or something like that. So Lean Pub allows you to set like the minimum and then such the recommended. Uh, and in hindsight, Mikhail should have like supported it more and paid like fifty, like some other people have done, but he was too cheap. Um, so he uh, he did that, and then he reached out to me and said like This is really interesting. Like keep me up to date. I'd love to like know the status, right? And then. Um, I think uh, Martin reached out to me like a couple days later. He just sent this like ominous email. It's just like, "Hey, I saw your book. Love to know more about it." And I was like, "What?" Like, I, I I read it and I was like, "Oh man!" Because I was super conscious of like using activity and like writing a book and plain language things. And I thought, "Oh, they're going to be mad at me. They're not going to like that I'm doing this." But he was super supportive as well. So he was like. A, your 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 cover's amazing. If he's listening to this, he knows. He said the cover sucked, and he always says the cover sucks every time I see him. He brings it up every time, but he said the cover sucks, so he wanted to pay for a cover. So he he paid for a new cover, um, and then he was emailing me like every day for new ideas. Right? He was like, "You need to do this. You need to do that." I got to the point where I told him, "Like Martin, I, like I wanted to tell him, I don't I don't work for you. Like stop stop telling me what to do." Um, and then uh, Yobert and I had connected because we were answering questions on Quora. And so all that to say, like, 
they it was like a support, right? Like they were there supporting the book and supporting me in developing. Um, and at the time, like I had reached out to Ben Singapore uh, through HackerOne to do like a web hacking pro tips interview. Um, and they supported that. And like Ben jumped online and was answering questions. And so I had all of this going on and I, I almost felt like I had to prove to, to those people that what I was doing wasn't like just wasting their time. So I wasn't, I wasn't entirely focused on like just the money perspective of things. Uh, I was focusing on that, on like wanting to prove myself and then looking at the activity, looking at the write-ups, like people were finding bugs. Like it's, it was clear, like there were write-ups every day and I would read and digest everything I could. So I knew the bugs were there. Um, it just never occurred to me that like this would be a dry spell. It, it, I almost felt like I just had to get to a level where I just was there that I could find the bugs too. I, I always had that idea of like, I was just behind some hidden wall. And once I got past that wall, I would be able to find all the bugs that were out there as well. So that was, that was a big motivating uh, mentality, which I didn't appreciate I had until well, well after. You had said something that I found interesting is the anxiety of finding the next one or like, oh, what if this is the last one? Or like, what if this is the one I'm not, I'm not going to find anymore for like the next three months or so? What are some strategies that other people who also are going, who, who might be going through the same thing now can also employ? Yeah. Um, when, when, when new people reach out to me now uh, and they're kind of like talking to me and they're, they're asking me, I always like my always number one piece of advice is like the, the, the goal shouldn't be money, right? Like if the goal is money, you're going to be stressed out about it, like whatever it is. Right. But if you refocus your goals when I started, I didn't realize my goal was learning, right? Like that's what I was trying to do. Like ultimately my, where I wanted to be was making money, but my goal was like learning something new. And so I think if you approach it that way, um, you know, when you sit down and you go after a target um, and you happen to be in a dry spell, just make sure that you sit down and, you know, you're hacking for those three or four hours or however much time that you have that you write down what you found, what you learned, right? Like if you sat there and you just signed to like cash money, I think tweeted out the other day, like, don't just like pepper XSS payloads everywhere, right? Like, Think, take a step back from an application, learn how to use it, and then find a goal. And that's like how Yobert recommends approaching a target as well, right? It's like go after a certain bone type. So if you do that, if you if you sit down for those three or four hours and you start looking for something uh, that isn't just injecting like the same XSS everywhere, you can then take 10, 15 minutes at the end of that hacking session and write down what you learned, right? So was it debugging JavaScript? Right? Like if you want to go after JavaScript files because you want to find like hidden XSS, uh, do you know how to use the debugger properly? Like, could you improve that? Like, can you use breakpoints? Can you deobfuscate JavaScript? Right. Um, you know, if you're looking for say uh, SSRF, right. And you're looking for specific endpoints that have URLs, right. Can you do a better job of using say burp in your history to go through and grep through all of this stuff, even hidden endpoints, right? Like if you're if you're trying to find things that have been there for a long time or people haven't found, how are you going about finding those if it's an API, right? Like go through Burp, how are you, you know parsing things? Have you gone through like uh, APK or sorry mobile applications and deconstructed them? Like focus on learning something each time, documenting that, and then revisiting that um, because a that's how you're going to learn, and b that's how you're going to solidify your learning uh, when you're revisiting. Um, and I, I think that's the I think that's what will get you through those dry spells is knowing that there's progress. I think the money and the bounties that you get are an indicator of progress and success, right. but they're not the only indicator, right? And so if you try to reframe that, 
getting away from the negative and focusing on the positive, like you like mentioned before, mm-hmm. uh, that will keep you going, um, in my mm-hmm. mind. So now that we are on the topic of health and mental health for hackers, what are some healthy habits that you employ? Just because, you know, you're known as the largest arms in InfoSec. I, I almost spit out my drink when you said <laughs> that. Um, uh, <laughs> I, I, yeah, uh, I don't know how I got that or where it's coming from. I actually just made it up. <laughs> <laughs> so for me, I started a long time ago. Like Arnold uh, Schwarzenegger was a big role model for me um, for multiple reasons, partly because of his size, but also his work ethic, right? And so I remember reading like Arnold used to get up and work out at like 5 a.m. and then he would go and do whatever he needed to do, right? And so... I think it was like 18. I was like, oh man, if Arnold's working out at 5.30 or 5 o'clock in the morning, I should be working out at 5 o'clock in the morning. And so that was a habit that I started um, back when I was like 18. I still do that. I get up at 5.30 to uh, to catch the train to come downtown and, and I work out. And I work out first thing kind of Monday to Friday. I would do it seven days a week, but my wife told me that that's not acceptable. So <laughs> I don't do it seven days a week, especially with young kids. Uh, so I do it Monday to Friday and I try to never miss a workout. Be it, you know, just kind of get on the treadmill or hit the weights. And that's become important to me purely from the mental standpoint. I didn't appreciate it when I started it, but a few years into it, when I'm at the gym and I'm kind of like working out, it's meditative, right? Like Mm -hmm. it's, you you kind of get there and you just fall, like you fall into that flow state where the only thing you're thinking about is what's going on right there. And your entire mind is clear and and focused. Um, So that is a huge physical benefit for me, but also uh, mental. I also try to eat well, which it's not always easy. Like I, I think like being at Shopify, they give you free food. So, you know, I ballooned to my heaviest uh, <laughs> not long ago. And so I think I've dropped like, yeah, I'll be honest. I think I got up to like 233, uh, which was my heaviest. And I was like, oh man, like the pants are not fitting anymore. And so I managed to bring that back down. I think I'm like at 216 or 215 now uh, with the goal being to try to get down to like 200. Um, so, uh, you know, healthy eating, uh, the working out. Um, I also try to, this isn't so much physical as it is mental, but, um, I've been trying to focus more on my mental health, at least for the last year. Right. So I've been, I've been reading books a lot more that are, that are focused on that. I know that procrastination is, is a big problem of mine. And so I've been reading about procrastination and the ways to tackle that and, and what actually causes that, right. It's not just laziness. Like there's a whole bunch that goes into that. So I've been, I've been doing that and like, uh, books like I think it's like the now habit have been great for that like reframing the mental narrative that you have in your head of like I need to do this or I have to do that or like failure makes you you know worthless type idea um, it all kind of reframes all of that which led into reading like deep work um, which uh, started talking about like just turning everything off and focusing on what you're focusing on for the next like three or four hours and having no distractions which Cal Newport then read digital minimalism so I removed like LinkedIn from my phone, Twitter from my phone, uh, got rid of like the, the Google home feed on my pixel. Um, and so while I did that, uh, I started putting it down on my phone at home. Right. So when I'm there and I'm playing with my daughters, I just, my phone is away. And even like in digital minimalism, they talk about the references, like people looking at their phone when their kids are like having a bath. Um, and once my daughter got to an age where like she plays by herself in the bath, I was like, I'm just sitting there standing and I was like, oh, I might as well just like read something on my phone, make use of my time. And I've stopped that so that I'm entirely present. And all of that has been hugely positive for me. I, I, for a while, I, I just got disengaged with hacking. I wasn't having fun. I wasn't um, enjoying it because I wasn't really finding bugs. I was looking for low hanging fruit. I wasn't learning anything. And so 
once I stepped back and I started focusing on that, especially the mental game and this last hacking event as well, I got super uh, excited and re-energized. Uh, and I think that's, that's partly the reason why. I wonder if everyone has the same mentality of like learning and growing and like, I wonder how they'll respond to like a bug bounty program for like a platform that they are not at all familiar with. I think the way that I see it playing out is like, in my mind, bug bounty hunters go to where the largest return on investment is. Right? I see. So they're going to go to where they're going to get a return on their time. And so that's not to say that it's like static, but I think what ends up happening, the way that I see it, I don't know, this isn't scientific. This might not actually be the case, but and I've never really sat down to think about this long and hard, but the initial way that I see things playing out is like, there are the hackers that are doing it for bug bounties, and there are hackers that are doing this for intellectual curiosity, right? And those people that are doing it for intellectual curiosity are just going after bugs to find them. And so, and this is discounting like black hats and all the rest of that kind of shit. So if you look at the people that are doing it for intellectual curiosity, they tend to go find stuff and then they go to conferences and they report it and they give it. And then you have exploits that are out there. People have unpatched software, right? And then you have the bug bounty hunters that pick that up and then go and start popping all these services. So when something new comes, what I end up seeing is people focus on web because they get return on investment. They can easily scan, they develop tools, they get all this stuff kind of picked off, right? People that learn new things and then teach it are going to go out, they're going to do that. So they'll pick up, let's use Kubernetes as an example. They'll go and they'll hack on Kubernetes. They'll write up those vulnerabilities, they'll get disclosed. Those other people that are doing bug bounties are going to pick that up. And they're going to add that to their arsenal, right? So they're not going to actively go and like necessarily learn about that new technology. Like there, there, there definitely are some that do that and they make their bread and butter that way. But for the most part, I think they'll pick up kind of what's, what's put out there in terms of knowledge and then bring that in. And so slowly their circle might expand to include that technology, but they're not actively trying to go out and learn that. Right. Um, and then there's like these are the subset of people that actually do do that who like, you know, we're doing this full time. They have the capacity. They might set aside like eight hours, let's say, in a week to learn something new or test something new. Um, and then they're kind of like the niche that is going after this. Um, that's the way that I see that playing out. Like it, the example is like Shopify M Ruby, right? Like we had that as a as a bug bounty program. Everybody that present like participated in Shopify's M Ruby Shopify scripts bug bounty program that submitted reports wasn't a web hacker. They all came from all different areas, and that's because Shopify paid a lot of money at the time for any type of vulnerability. And so it was, it was lucrative and attractive for those people to come out. They were not bug bounty hunters, um, but they submitted bugs because uh, they had the skill set. So speaking of like. You don't do bug bounties full time. You have a day job, and you you know you have kids and a wife, and you know um, live hacking events. You know require you to be there in person. Hence the live part. Does that ever get in the way? Especially because you know you were saying that you you go to the gym five times a week. Do live hacking events ever kind of impede on your daily routines? They should. Uh, I don't do a, a great job, to be honest, um, in preparing for live hacking events. Mm -hmm. um, and I always say I always come out of them every time. Like. Every time I talk with like hacker one after live hacking, it's like, ah, oh, I should have done more to prepare for this. I know I should have done more. Um, and I always feel that way, that I, that I should have done more. And I could have been way more mm -hmm. successful. Um, but I'm not because I'm trying to balance that, right? Like my, my family life is like my number one priority. So, um, you know, things come up. Like there were certain times this last hacking event where I had like dedicated time that I was going to hack. And, like the one that comes to my mind is like I took, uh, I had an extra day off because my travel plans uh, changed. And so like I was supposed to leave Wednesday, I didn't. 
And so I, I stayed home and I thought, okay, I'll just hack all day that Wednesday. Like, uh, I'll just forget about kind of like the other prep. I'll just have one full day. And so I went to do that. Uh, and obviously my daughter's at home and my daughter's three and a half and I'm working and she comes into my office and is like, daddy, it snowed. Do you want to go outside and play? And I was like, yes, I do. <laughs> I'm gonna, so I turn off yeah. the computer um, and I just went outside. And that was actually, I mean, it's not entirely like his, to his credit, but Mark Litchfield, uh, you know, maybe, you know, one of, if not the best hackers um, doing bug bounties, like talked about that, like how he looks back um, and he was so focused on his business at the time that he lost time with his children. He was talking about that. Um, and it's always a bit in the back of my mind, but uh, to me, it, it, it I, I thought about it and it kind of it made me really reconsider what I was doing because I was so focused on like the bug bounty community and you, you know, you get this rush, like everyone knows your name and you kind of like, you know, you, you kind of create this personality that's out there and people kind of know who you are. And then when I was reading that, I was like, what's it all for? Right. Like at the end of the day, my, so when, when my daughter came in and said that, I was like, yes, let's do it. And so I didn't really hack any like at all for that. And then, you know, I got to the event, I did do as well. And then I kind of like, Oh, why didn't I do as well? And, you know, you kind of beat yourself up. But uh, this one was great because, you know, I saw so many friends and everyone was so open. And what I decided to do was just continue to focus on Airbnb when I left. So, you know, I didn't have a, an amazing event. I found three bugs. So I went three for three. But I've since found, you know, maybe another uh, like six or seven reports to Airbnb. And so I like to think that I didn't do well at the event, but I stuck with their program. And so for them as a customer, they're getting value out of the fact that I went uh, and participated right. because I stuck with their program and now they've gotten all of this stuff. So, yeah, I, I don't know if that answered your question or not, but uh, that's my answer. No, that, I mean, that definitely answered uh, my question. My follow-up to that is, do you ever get anxiety or do you ever get worried about not being invited back to a live hacking event? Because I haven't, either one haven't been performing well or like I'm not coming because I have family things like... Yeah, uh, every single time I get invited, to be honest, I, I have that fear, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's like, if I don't perform, I'm never going to be invited back. And, and mm -hmm. as a result, I go in there uh, like A, with this imposter syndrome, uh, B, with this like almost crippling anxiety that like I'm not going to do well. Um, and so like, and I talked to Hacker one about that, like Gilbert and I always talk about that. And his response is always the exact same. Like that, that's not the way that these are supposed to be run or that's not the way you're supposed to feel. And everyone is kind of like, like, don't worry about like your performance isn't the only thing that like guides you, right? Like at these specific events. Um, and that's like looking at this, like why I've continued to focus on say like Airbnb uh, is because it's taken in a hole, right? So I, I haven't been invited uh, because I'm the best hacker on the platform, but I do work extremely hard. And when I'm, when I'm there at that event, uh, I tend to sit down for the entire eight hours and I'm hacking like start to finish. I think, you know, if I've been there, let's say I've been there 10 events. I don't know how many events I've been to, 10, eight events, whatever. 75% of those events, uh, 10 is way too many. But my point is 75 to 80% of those events, I have found my bugs in like the last hour of the event uh, because I've sat there the entire time. Uh, and my mentality is you've brought me out for this. I'm going to, I'm going to give you my time and my effort. And I found my, like, I think at like the DEF CON event uh, a couple of years back, like I found my last bug with like the half hour and I was furiously typing. Um, this last event, I found the, the a bug like with last two minutes and I couldn't even submit the report. I had to ask them like, can, can I still submit this to like the regular program and bring it over because I was in the middle and I wasn't sure if you wanted this. So it's that type of mentality. And I also, you know, Ted talked about it. I'm, I'm super passionate about giving back, right? And like teaching others. Mm -hmm. And so I've always asked Ted, like, how can I be involved to help 
others learn, like especially like youth, youth groups that they bring out. Um, so when I do pause, it it's, tends to be to go and help with those community days. Uh, and I think every single event that I've gone to, I've participated in those community days and tried to help out and, and help people. So I, I, I think that's, it's, it's this holistic approach. It's not necessarily just the bugs. Um, and the other, like the other thing, if, if people are wondering how to get invited and they're asking my advice, I don't know that there's a magic formula. But if you're respectful, you know, you're, you're kind, you're helpful, you have, uh, you know, your head's in the right place. Um, all of that like ends up coming back to platforms, right? Like all of those interactions you have with a program, they're going to get fed back into uh, the company. People are going to know, they're going to pick up on that. And so you don't have to be dropping RCEs everywhere, um, but you have to have uh, just kind of like a good approach to thing. Don't make noise, be respectful uh, and I think you'll have a good opportunity. I think it can be a little bit controversial in terms of teaching other people and mentoring other people in the bug bounty space, just because, you know, like in in a sense, like, you know, if you've taught me, for example, to find a cross-site scripting vulnerability, and I found that while we were looking at the same target, I'm taking that money away from you, right? I guess, what is your motivation for teaching and what is your motivation for mentoring no, I'm, I'm laughing because that, so that happened with me. So Kevin Rowe, like my good friend, right? Like we were sitting at like the first time we were at DEF CON together and I was going after something and, and it was like a crappy, like low hanging fruit bug. Like it was just, uh, I don't remember. It was some type of information disclosure. And I remember telling Kev and Kev was like, oh man, that's really interesting. And then, so he turned around on his computer and started like going and he's like, oh, I found it too. And I was like, <laughs> what, what, what is this? And so to yeah. this day, like I still bug him about it. Um, but, uh, like, it happens, right? And Kev was cool. Kev was like, I'll split the bounty with you. And I told him, like, I don't want that. Like, you found it. It's yours. Like, don't worry about that. Um, but there's definitely there's definitely that mentality out there of, like, if you're teaching people, you're just essentially teaching competition. My perspective on it, and the reason why I do it, is because the, the, the landscape that's out there is unfathomable. Like, you really cannot comprehend the number of websites that are out there on the Internet and what they're doing, what type of access to information that they have. Uh, let alone the sensitivity around like payments and all the rest of that kind of stuff. Like it's just, there is way too much to cover right now. So if I can go out and I can teach more people and we can start trying to maybe like lower or kind of shrink the skills gap. So there's more people there that's going to justify or rather legitimize this space so that more, more companies are going to come on board. Mm -hmm. So the more people that are out there hacking, finding vulnerabilities, legitimizing what's going on, the more companies that are super hesitant are going to come on board and they're going to bring more property to the game, right? And so there's going to be more bugs to find. And that's that's even if you just consider everything on the internet static. But if you then comp, like think about how much code is being shipped every single day, which I didn't appreciate until I got to Shopify. If you think about all the code that gets shipped every single day, new vulnerabilities are going to be added, even if no new website is added to the, to the internet, right? So there's just this huge amount of landscape to cover. We don't have enough people to do it. I think we have to get people in there. And then that landscape will continue to grow. So there's always going to be opportunity. I think if you if you take that mentality of like, if we teach somebody else, they're, they're taking a dollar out of my mouth. Like, I don't agree with that at all. They're in the, in the near term, in the short-sighted perspective, sure. Maybe you're competing, you're, you know, you're losing, you're losing uh, a couple bucks. But in the grand scheme of things, I don't think that's, that's the case at all. Um, and that's not even talking about like 
just the whole idea of public safety on the internet and the responsibility that we all have and how that's going to change in the future. Did you receive any lashback when you were writing Webhacking 101 or as you write Webhacking 101? I was always like super concerned about that. Like somebody would jump out of the bushes and be like, what are you doing? Like, you know, you're screwing us all over. Um, and that was like the imposter syndrome. Now I don't care, but no, I never, I don't think I had any negative feedback. I mean, there's the trolls out there, the people that like just right, have way right. too much energy that just do not stop. I don't know how they continue to focus and be so negative, but beyond the trolls, like anything legitimate, no. You've said the phrase imposter syndrome a couple times now that, that we've been talking. That's something I think is very real within the security community, especially in the bug bounty space. At least I've heard it said a lot in the bug bounty space. Would you be willing to share like kind of like where that comes from for you? Of course. So for me, it's like I, I don't have a formal education in any of this, right? Like it's all self-taught. So when it's self-taught and you're the only one sitting behind a computer screen, you know, you don't know if you've got it right or you got it wrong or somebody's going to be angry at what you're doing uh, and how you're approaching it. So that's where it started for me. Uh, like, and it was, it's not even just hacking. Like it was when I was doing Drupal stuff, right? Like I remember recording my Drupal videos and thinking, uh, Oh man, somebody's going to like, I've got this wrong or somebody's going to like jump out of the bushes and be like, you don't know what you're talking about. Why are you teaching other people? Yeah. Um, and I remember it happened on like a forum post once, like somebody called me out and was like, what are you talking about? Um, and it like, it kept me up like all night. Like I was like devastated that it happened. Um, but the world like continued to turn, like everything went on. Uh, I still had a lot of people that provided positive feedback on those videos. Um, and it was that positive feedback that encouraged me to do Webhacking 101. Um, so the imposter syndrome was live and well. It's just, it's always, it's always this feeling in the back of your mind, like, hey, uh, you know, maybe uh, this isn't for me, or maybe, you know, people recognize I don't know what it is that I'm doing. But I, I you know, I personally get through it by just being a little bit more transparent and putting things out there. It was very real joining Shopify. Uh, and it's something that Shopify kind of like has documentation around uh, because it's so prevalent when you join. Um, so they have a lot of support on that. Uh, and the books that I've read, you know, I, I'm drawn a blank on what title it was talking about, but it was talking about like team communication uh, and what makes like the most effective teams uh, and the ability to be vulnerable uh, is like one of the largest contributing factors to that. Right. So like teams don't have to love each other, but if you're supportive and recognize that you can have an open, transparent communication and know that if you say, Hey, I don't know this, you're not going to be reprimanded or nobody's going to hold it against you. You end up growing so much more. And so I've been trying to kind of take that and internalize that, uh, and I've definitely been way more vulnerable with the with the team uh, in terms of like just voicing my concern. We have a, a saying at Shopify, you know, uh, strong opinions weekly held, uh, and I've tried to kind of embody that a little bit more, both within the bug bounty community and at work uh, and at home, and just kind of speak up. And that that's been helpful for the for the imposter syndrome. But uh, it's not something you can just immediately like turn the switch and you're good to go. For anyone listening, what would you want them to take away with um, as strategies to deal with their imposter syndrome? And to be a more healthy hacker. Man, that is, uh, I mean, I think the biggest thing is just like communicate, right? Like, and I don't mean like just throw things out to the world, but but talk to somebody. Like, I was going to say like you can reach out to me on like Twitter and that kind of thing, but I keep my DMs closed uh, just because, you know, you get inundated and now I'm kind of like closing myself off to Twitter. But if you go it alone, it, it doesn't really work. I think a big thing, you know, if you're going to do that and you're, you're not quite comfortable talking to somebody or kind of like reaching out at least right now, um, is just kind of like take a step back and self-reflect on like, what is it that is really kind of 
holding you back or making you feel that way, right? Um, and I don't want to say like go find books, but there there's a lot of good books that are there now um, that talk about like deconstructing this and figuring it out, like like the now habit that I, I think it's the now habit that could be entirely wrong. Um, but like even deep work and that kind of thing, like they, they talk about these types of things and, and they, they at least kind of set you onto the path of like self-reflection and figuring out what's going on. And so I think if you go down that path, you start kind of talking, recognize that the internet's the internet. There's always going to be trolls at the end of the day, you can just close a laptop and you're still in a physical world with physical friends and, and use that. So be transparent. If you don't know something, just speak up and say, you don't know it. Everyone that I've talked to and everyone that I've known, like through web hacking, like the deep dive interviews uh, with pro hackers has been super transparent and supportive of the fact that I'm asking questions. I don't know. And I'm just going to take that. And I don't care that I don't know. it. Uh, I just want to learn. Uh, and I think if you learn and you contribute that back, people are super respect, receptive to wanting to, to help you. Um, so it's a long-winded answer. Unfortunately, I don't have like one bullet that would just tell you like this no, is the solution to it. That's fair. But um, I, I, you know, I think if you're you're honest, you're vulnerable, you put yourself out there. For the most part, people are generally good and will help you. Well. Pete Jaworski, thank you so much for joining me on the show. Yeah, absolutely. I'm uh, I'm honored that you asked me. Thank you very much. Do you have any shameless plugs, words of wisdom, shout outs, anything? <sighs> I got a laundry list. Uh, <laughs> how much time do we have? Um, no, that's what shameless plugs. Like, I mean, if you want to buy the book, uh, I really appreciate that. Both on Lean Pub, Real World uh, Web Hacking when it's out. Alternatively, if you can't afford it, you can get a free copy on HackerOne. Shout out to them for, for doing that. They, mm-hmm. they pre-purchase copies of the book and they give them away to everybody that joins HackerOne uh, so that they can learn and they have that opportunity. Um, and then, I mean, you and I wouldn't be having this conversation if it weren't for everyone that sat down with me and did like Web Hacking Pro Tips, uh, which is an interview series that I try to continue with. I'm not very good at keeping to a schedule, but uh, all of those people are kind of the people that have helped me. Uh, they're too long to list. But without their support, I, I, I don't know that I would have, A, learned what I did, or B, stuck with it as long as I did it. Um, so they all deserve more recognition than I do. Hey there, thanks for listening. Real World Bug Hunting is available for pre-order, but if you want to start learning right away, you can purchase Web Hacking 101 on LeanPub. You can also get a free ebook version when you sign up on HackerOne. Also, you can learn by watching all of Pete's Web Hacking Pro tips by searching for that on YouTube. And of course, check for updates and sign up for the mailing list on hackerculture.fm. That's hackerculture.fm. This episode was recorded by me and mixed by Rob Didio. Special thanks to Pete for an awesome conversation, and we wish him the best in climbing the HackerOne leaderboards. And of course, thank you, listener, for tuning in. You can let us know what you thought of this episode by tweeting at HackerCultureFM. If you liked it, make sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, or you can even let me know through a voice message on Anchor. And don't forget to tune in next week on wherever you listen to podcasts.